The first part I'd like to talk about is instant gratification and this addiction to instant gratification and recognizing that it takes a long time to get there. So fall in love with the process and detach yourself from the outcome because that's what enabled me to be able to ride the biggest waves in the world. I didn't go out with the intention to ride the biggest waves in the world. I went out with the intention to prepare myself for in the event that the day arrives, I'm prepared to ride the biggest waves in the world. This is Superfast Business with James Schramko. James Schramko. Helping you build your business super fast. James Schramko here. Welcome back to superfastbusiness.com. This is episode 802. And today we're going to be talking about champions. And the best way to do that is with a champion, not just a regular champion, but a seven times world champion. Welcome, Lane Beachley. Thanks, James. 802. That's insane. You're a champion of the podcast. <laughs> well, I've been grinding away at it for a while. And uh, yeah. it's testimony, I think, to this idea that you don't have to be the absolute best, but you do have to be committed and disciplined and stick to something for a while. And it turns out that the online world has become increasingly popular, especially in last year in 2020. Most of the population started figuring out what a Zoom is <laughs> and my whole world uh, became known to normal people. Because, of course, we operate in this sort of alien world. I last worked in an office job in about 2008. But the thing is, you haven't really ever done much of an office job, have you? You've worked in a surf shop at one point and, yeah. and a bar. Mm. Yeah, well, the ocean has always been my office. It has. Yeah, that's been my office job since I was about four. I remember reading uh, your dad once told a phone caller that you were on a work trip to Indonesia. Yes, that's true. <laughs> he actually told my biological mother the first time he ever spoke to her that I was on a work trip to Indo, but never told her what I did. <laughs> and she thought you were a journalist. Yep, that's right. And, I, and to a degree, I was always researching. I was always doing some research and development and looking for greener pastures and better waves. Well, the reason you're on this show is, um, well, there's a few reasons, but obviously we can learn a lot from a world champion. We can understand what goes on to achieve something like that. It's really quite an incredible achievement. I mean, God, I'm sitting next to a Mark Richards board and he won four world championships. and Underachiever. <laughs> only you can say that. <laughs> so... You've been uh, increasingly more interested in sort of getting out into the market post your championship career and helping other people. And you're in such a qualified position to help. I think it's probably worth talking a little bit about the early years because it sets up, you know, how much of an achievement that was for you to win seven world titles. Having just read your book, I found it a very emotional experience because I spend a lot of time with my daughter these days and she's about two. Oh, wow. You know, reading about your childhood, you were adopted, your mum passed away at an early age. I guess your daycare or recreation was really down in the big men's world of the surfing environment of Manly, skating around and surfing from a very young age. And you went through school. By the way, you got a higher school HSC score than I did. So congratulations yeah. on that. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how much it means to both of us. I didn't even pass. What? You didn't pass? <laughs> yep. No, I think I got 227 out of 500. Oh. How did that happen? You blitzed me. <laughs> yeah. 299 was a big achievement. Yeah. I often take my daughter to the park across the road from your old school. Oh. So you um, quit the amateur league because you were finding that there were some really sort of bad things happening in terms of the way that people were behaving around the women 
back then. Do you want to just talk about what it was like having this passion of surfing, but finding it difficult to have a good environment for you to be able to practice that or to compete in that? Yeah, the women's tour back in the 80s or 70s when I started competing was a really toxic environment. And it's not because of the women. It was actually because of the way in which they were treated or mistreated. I started surfing, as you said, when I was four years of age down at Manly. And uh, there were no other women except for when Pam Burridge would come home from the tour. So I, I actually found a level of comfort being around guys. I found it easier to be around guys because then I went to an all-girls high school and found myself surrounded by a bunch of bitches. And I was like, why are girls so emotionally vindictive? Why are they so bitchy? Why are they so hard on each other? And Why can't I just hang out with the guys all the time? So Because they're easy and they're fun. And if they have a problem with you, they tell you and then they get over it. You know, Whereas girls, they harbor these emotional vendettas for their lives. And I didn't want to be like that. So when I started competing as a teenager, I was competing against guys. So I once again found this level of comfort in that environment. And it wasn't until I started competing against the girls that I realized, actually, I don't really like this environment. And that was just, as you suggested, in the amateur season, in the amateur rounds before I became a professional surfer. So I was still in high school. I started competing against these girls who were just so evil and mean and you know they would never celebrate your success if anything that when if you succeeded and beat them they'd bring you down and it's like I don't like this toxic behavior and it's certainly not something I want to be around very often so yeah I chose not to compete in the amateurs because it was just an unhealthy toxic environment that didn't bring the best out in me and it certainly didn't show the best of uh, the people in the in the arena. I noticed like after school you had quite a few difficult years when you were trying to break into the professional league it wasn't a cakewalk. You didn't just roll in and start dominating. You had some really difficult period there where you're unhappy, unhealthy. I had fatigue. You were finding it very hard to travel on an extremely limited budget in a probably well underpaid category. I think the women and the men's contests were completely poles apart in terms of how funded they were. And you may not have been getting as much support from sponsors, etc. So it must have been challenging. And I noticed you were journaling. You journaled a lot. I wonder how important was that process for you? And was it interesting for you to look back on that? Absolutely. It was really interesting looking back on my journal. I mean, most of the time I journaled because I didn't want it in my head anymore. And I found it as a cathartic emotional release, similar to crying. And I found it to free me of the negativity or the sadness or whatever was going on in my mind that was weighing me down. Equally, I like to journal when I'm feeling exuberant and happy. So I don't just rely on my journal to get me through hard times. I also use it to support me through fun times. But during my career, there were a lot more hard times than there were fun times. And that was because I was a saboteur of my own happiness. And I was also deeply invested in struggle and pain and suffering. And of course, I didn't become aware of that until I won my sixth consecutive world title, until I'd achieved my goal and then reflected on my career and went, holy shit, that was a lot harder than it needed to be. But there's the lesson. So journaling, and still to this day, plays a vital role in my mental well-being. Going back and reading them, yeah, it was interesting. Because when we go through hard times and we go through moments of discomfort and pain and suffering, we forget how shit we feel. And then we get past it and then we move on. And it's not till I reread my diaries. I'm like, wow, I didn't realize I was that depressed or that unhappy or I didn't, I hated myself so much. I didn't realize that that still happened. I mean, that's why women keep having babies, right? They forget how painful it was. So they just, they remember the joy. <laughs> so 
Yes, it was a really cathartic and beautiful, reflective experience to go back and read those diaries. A lot of us write journals to forget stuff, but it's also sometimes very helpful to go back and remind of remind yourself of what you've been through, what you've overcome, what you've endured, and how you've been able to utilize that to catapult yourself into arenas of success and happiness. One thing I noted is you've had a real habit of dealing with intense pain, mm. whether you're smashing your face in a contest <laughs> and try not to reveal too much about that to the contest organizer or having a wave land on the middle of your back and slipping a few vertebrae. And then you just push through. You had a few of your victories under incredible scenarios, like people literally gluing your face together. (laughs) How much do you have to be aware of not just using that disassociation or that masking in regular life? Oh, I have to be extremely aware because when I think about pain and injury, the first emotion that comes up is shame. Because my childhood, I mean, I loved my childhood, irrespective of the challenges that I endured. I loved the freedom that I experienced as a child, the freedom to play, the freedom to fail, the freedom to make mistakes, the freedom to figure things out as I go. Like you say, you know, I didn't join the tour and dominate from the onset. I joined the tour and failed for five years. Mm. And I love the freedom and the lessons that come with that. However, I do remember when I injured myself as a kid, the shame that was wrapped up in that because I grew up with a father who's still, you know, my absolute love of my life today, but he grew up with a tough love generation where if you injured yourself, you know, get over it, pick yourself up and get on with it. And my, as you read in my book, I jumped over a wall, I smashed my knee, it swelled to twice its size, my best friend came over and he showed a level of empathy, you know, like, are you okay? And Dad's like, I get in a bloody wheelchair. So I'm a silent sufferer because of that, because I believe I deserve to be injured or I believe I deserve to be sick. You know, I don't want to worry someone or burden someone with my pain and suffering. And so I'm still conscious of that today because I do suffer in silence for a prolonged period of time. And I've just got to be conscious and recognize that I'm in that state and then either have the courage to put up my hand or do something about it myself or go and see somebody that I know can help me. So, yeah, I'm I'm constantly uh, checking that because it's too easy to silence myself. At least in the early years, you probably equated winning with receiving love. Like it was very important for you to win. Mm. Have you changed your approach to competitive forces or, you know, needing to compete with others versus competing with your best version of yourself? Needing to compete with others faded away when I fell off the tour or chose to retire from the pro tour. So I am constantly competing with the best version of myself. And it's amazing how the best versions of us change, (laughs) Um, you know, like our values change, our expectations, our desires, our vision that all evolve as we do as human beings. So when I think about the person I was when I was competing back in the 80s, 90s and 2000s, I can barely relate to that person because I'm still competitive and I'm still driven, but in a completely different way and also in a way more sustainable way because I was win at all costs. Yes, as you say, the desire to win was fueled by my desire to feel loved, but ultimately I determined the rules of the game. So if I didn't perform in a way that I was happy with, even though I won, I wasn't happy. Yeah, I was really hard on myself. I had really fierce expectations. It was a real painful way to win. And I also decided that because my vision and my sense of self-worth and my sense of worthlessness, it was a constant dance. My result ebbed and flowed with my inconsistent mindset. So one day I felt really good. I performed really well. The next day I felt really shit. So I performed really badly. And yeah, 
I'm exhausted just reflecting on it. Oh my god, how did I still win? I'm exhausted reading your book. It was <laughs> like and scared. I there was a story in there where you went out toe surfing in enormous waves. I think at one point you may have ridden the largest wave ever by a female. And there were only six or seven men on the planet who had ridden waves that big. It looked a lot like the conditions that I saw from a few weeks back in the, the North Shore was getting a big swell. Your observers said you looked calm and like you were just in your place. I've been surfing out here locally, you and I are neighbours, and on the day where I caught my biggest wave, you were even further out than I was, and I had a lot of adrenaline in my body. And I uh, could see you're just paddling around like it's uh, you know a sunny Sunday, one or two foot, but it was, <laughs> it was probably eight or nine feet. And at the time, it was the biggest wave I'd ever caught. And uh, I know most people listening to this will not be able to relate what it's like staring down the face of an enormous wave. But I'm wondering, you know, you put a lot of preparation to that, everything from swimming underwater in caves to having a strong relationship with the big guy at the time in that field. How important is it for people to be realistic about the journey they're going on and, and how long it takes to get that big result rather than just expecting it next week, which is a phenomenon we see a lot in my industry. Someone listening to this might see a lot of successful people, a lot of famous people, and it could really intimidate them. What sort of advice would you give to someone who's thinking about the building blocks that need to be put in place to get there? It's a tough question to answer because it's so individualized and so unique. The first part I'd like to talk about is instant gratification and this addiction to instant gratification and recognizing that it takes a long time to get there. So fall in love with the process and detach yourself from the outcome because that's what enabled me to be able to ride the biggest waves in the world. I didn't go out with the intention to ride the biggest waves in the world. I went out with the intention to prepare myself for in the event that the day arrives, I'm prepared to ride the biggest waves in the world. Between now and then, I'm actually towing into the smallest waves you could possibly tow into just to hone my skills, to become familiar with my equipment, to hone my the skill of towing somebody else into a wave. Like There's a lot that goes into towing, surfing and riding big waves. Then there's the mental aspect and the mental preparation of accepting that the worst case scenario in these kind of days is death. So how okay are you with dying? And I know with business, it can feel like life or death sometimes because you put your heart and soul and invest everything that you own into creating something that you have you know, profound, deep desires for it to be successful. And in the event that it isn't, then you consider the, I guess, what you're going to lose, the enormity of everything that could possibly go wrong. So you have to prepare yourself for everything that can possibly go wrong. And then you have to go out into the environment and detach yourself from everything that can go wrong and focus on what you need to do to get the job done. When I was competing for my sixth consecutive world title, I mean, everything, I mean, everything was on the line for me to win this. And I went to Kelly Slater and asked him, how do you deal with the pressure of competing year after year after year and having the world look at you and expect you to win and then you amplify or magnify that with your own personal expectations? What's your advice? And he said, get okay with losing. And I thought, well, that's really profound advice, but how the hell do you do that? 
Because if you stop focusing on what you don't want, you'll stop manifesting what you don't want. And I love to simplify the mindset that's associated with succeeding in life, but it also comes down to doing a lot of hard work. Like it's as simple as stop focusing on what you don't want, yet most of us only know what we don't want. We don't know what we do want. So going out and surfing that 50-foot waves that you're referring to taught me the value and the importance of focusing on what I do want because in the moment, everything in my being, my ego, every aspect of my life is saying, don't do this. You're going to kill yourself. I'm like, yeah, I'm okay with that because I know what I need to do to get the job done. I focus on my processes and then the outcome speaks for itself. It takes a lot of practice outside of the arena to prepare you to achieve and perform in that way within the arena. And then the last thing I want to say is comparison leads to a sense of inadequacy. You are always going to feel inadequate if you're comparing yourself to someone who's achieved greatness, someone who's achieved what you want. Never compare yourself to them. Just learn from them. Be a sponge. Absorb as much knowledge and information from them. But the minute you start comparing yourself, you're never going to feel good enough. That's great advice. And I think the whole point around focusing on what you want that sort of speaks to the whether you're moving away from something or towards something. A lot of the great people out there that people aspire to or hold up in high esteem have just been so driven. They knew exactly what they wanted and they just don't let anyone get in between them and that goal. Mm. And then there's other people who are just fighting to get away from a bad situation. Yeah. Throughout your career, in the early phase, you were number two and you were really getting frustrated about not being number one. And you had a unique philosophy, a switch. You had a switch of strategy from how you dealt with dealing with the number one competitors out there. And that was to switch from basically bagging them out to supporting and uplifting them. I'd love it if you could talk about that because everyone listening to this has a number one out there who's constantly in their face. Their customers are reminding them about them. They keep coming up in their sales process or they keep seeing them online especially if they visited their website and they're being retargeted. It's probably very tempting to have an unhealthy attitude about your competitors. What made you switch and how do you think that became so effective for you? It's a really good question and I I thank you for reminding me about all the things that I did because I forget what I I went through. I literally read it a few hours ago, so it's fresh (laughs) in my mind. Perfect. So... I went on the footy show, which was a famous television show back here in the 90s, and I was kind of like the footy show girl. And they were talking to me about my chances. I was about to head to Hawaii to compete for the world title, and I think it was about the second time that I was in contention for the world title. And I remember bagging my competitor, my arch rival, a lady called Lisa Anderson, who had just won her third, and she was going for her fourth. And, uh, yeah, I was bagging her out. And then Barton Lynch rang me right after the show. Barton Lynch was a, a world champion, 1990 world champion. And he, oh, no, 89, 88, early 80s, late 80s, early 90s. Anyway, he's been a, a great mentor and, and a, a man who I refer to as one of my honesty barometers. And he rang me after the show and he said, you are setting yourself up for a massive flogging. You know, you're setting yourself up to fail because by saying that she's got no chance and you're way better in big waves, you're basically layering an immense amount of expectation and you you know, you're turning the whole world either against you or for you, you know. And if you fail, you're gonna make yourself look like an idiot. So I suggest you start elevating Lisa because when you beat her, it'll make you look that much better. And so I, I adopted that straight up. I thought, you know, that's really great advice, very sage counsel. And from that point on, I started, um, I actually got to a point where, especially when I won my first world title, where I was a little too self-effacing mm-hmm. and I had to start taking ownership of some of my results and successes and achievements because I kept kind of projecting them onto Ken or whoever else had supported me throughout the time. 
But yeah, that was a really beneficial mindset shift because then I stopped comparing, I stopped fearing, and that's where the judgment and criticism all comes. It comes from fear. And I started focusing on, once again, what do I need to do? What do I need to focus on? Stop focusing on what my competition are doing. Start focusing on me. And when I started focusing on me, I then started to actually become more successful, which then turned my competitors on to me. You know, they started focusing on me. And the minute your competition are focusing on you, they've stopped focusing on what they need to be doing. And then you've got them. So it's a classic mind games. Classic mind game. We hear Kelly Slater does a few mind games. I think he must be a similar age to you and to me. Yeah, Kelly's a year older than me. So he's two years older than you. Right. So he's about my age. Yeah. Now, I started surfing when I was 42. Wow. And this guy's still in the World Series, World Championship. At that age, it's quite a phenomenal achievement. At 50, Kelly's still competing. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. And he's competing against guys that probably weren't even born when he started doing the tour in the 90s, in the 1990s. You've competed against guys before. I have competed <laughs> against the guys before. Yes. That didn't go so well. But it was fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's... I remember hearing from John Buchanan, who was the Australian cricket coach, and he said that he wanted to have his players play the game so well they had to change the rules to contain them. It's like when you go and change class like that and you still beat the guys, that's really a lot of the psychology happening. It must have bolstered you. I think you came into a pretty hot streak after that too. Yeah, you're right, actually. That was when I was competing in Hawaii. Yep. And because I was living at Sunset Beach, I became the queen of sunset. I loved that wave more than anywhere else in the world. And I would just surf it every single day, whether it was two foot or 10 to 12 feet. And if it was too big to surf, I would swim out there just to become familiar with getting a hiding and get comfortable with getting a flogging. So I loved that wave more than anything. But the guys did not love the fact that I loved it so much and was willing to compete against them to prove that. Actually, I wasn't there to prove anything. I just loved to compete. So when I paddled out in a six-man heat at eight-foot sunset, on my 7-2 and flogged all of them, I paddled back in very quietly, grabbed both my boards and I walked back home and I had to be very, very respectful and very quiet of that achievement. I wasn't allowed to celebrate, wasn't allowed to let anybody know. Well, it's a small community, yeah. North Shore of Hawaii, isn't it? It is. So then the next day I paddled out in the quarterfinals against a notorious big wave bully called Johnny Boy Gomes and he was so nervous competing against me that he paddled up and growled in my face and it took every ounce of my being not to laugh in his face because I didn't want to be disrespectful but literally inside me I was going you've got to be kidding right like get over it dude it's just a heat but then after it he came first and I came second and the other guys lost and he came up and apologized and said you know the boys told me if I lost to a girl I wasn't allowed to come home and you know we're talking the late 90s early 2000s so um, that level of chauvinism and sexism within the sport took a long well it still exists but it's certainly not as prevalent as it once was there seems to be a good affinity between the hawaiians and australians yeah there is really good affinity i heard some story about mp back in the day he went right at pipeline and uh sort of invented the back door and when he came in they asked him why he went right and they said because they wouldn't let him go left (laughs) yep so that makes sense it's good to hear the guys getting it as well your nickname the beast no didn't stick unfortunately didn't stick do you have one you prefer Uh, well i grew up with a nickname gidget yep and then uh they attempted to call me the beast when i was on tour but that really didn't stick so gidget is still my nickname especially it's the name that everyone who's known me since i was a kid still calls me you are very friendly and giving especially around the local area like you've said hello to me many times just walking along the footpath you've guided me into the correct lineup because we have the choice where we live to go left or right Mm. and it makes quite a difference (laughs) 
sure does. If you get it right or wrong. <laughs> I've always appreciated that. I am curious, what is it like being married to a rock star? It's epic. <laughs> That's a good answer. I love being married to a rock star. And you'll be really maybe embarrassed that I've told you this, but on uh, Saturday night, there's a digitally remastered DVD, Blu-ray of the Wembley show that In Excess did in 1988, I think it was, called Live Baby Live. And we put it on the surround sound and it was loud, it was a go. It was like sitting in Wembley Stadium watching this concert and it was phenomenal. It still gives me goosebumps. It was spine-tingling. It's so cool to see Kirk in his element and seeing just how magnificent In Excess were. And they still are. Their music is timeless. So, um, yeah, it's fun being married to a rock star, but we're both very grounded, kind of humble, you know, respectful we're still human beings and so we, we keep each other quite grounded and that's one of the reasons why I love him so much because it's fun. It's definitely a lot of fun. Yeah, that's nice. So let's just talk about your work now. You've got a program called Awake Academy and I get the feeling you're kind of creating a program that you would have liked your 16-year-old self to have gone through. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes, you are correct. I really wish I had this when I was just joining the tour because the Ability to manage our emotions and monitor our thoughts and be self-accountable would have definitely shortcutted my success. It would have shortcutted my struggle and shortcutted, that's a really good word, it would have shortcut my struggle. And the objective behind Awake Academy is to really help people become their own accountability partner. And so I created a course called Own Your Truth. And the inspiration behind Own Your Truth is to help people wake up and own their shit and learn to trust in love because the majority of people are functioning from a fear-based mentality, which is what I did. I won seven world titles, six of them in a row and five of them in a state of fear. And I want to help people realize that you don't actually have to succeed in fear. You can succeed in love if you learn to trust in it. And a lot of people say, do you think you would have won six world titles in a row if you weren't that fiercely determined? And knowing how I won my first one and how I won my seventh one, I can honestly say, absolutely. I could have had a much easier run of it, but because I was so fiercely determined, had so many expectations, was so outcome focused, I made things a lot more difficult than they needed to be. I pushed people away. I endured severe pain and suffering when now I'm in constant pain management. So owning your truth is about helping people own their truth. It's about detaching from fear, bringing back the fun and helping people find their flow without having to go to counsellors and whatever else. You can just sit in your own home and your own time and go through the processes that I've laid out in this seven-round course. So it's at awakeacademy.com.au. Correct. And how does it work? They just watch the videos? Yeah, it's a um, self-paced, self-empowerment platform. So there's a 100-page workbook that you can either download or it can all be done digitally. There's 19 videos to watch, which actually correlates with the 19 years I was on tour. And believe it or not, I won 29 events, so there's actually 29 modules. That just happened organically. Seven rounds, 29 modules. Lucky you didn't make a module per surfboard that you own. You would have been busy. Well, yeah. No, I'm, I did a workbook per surfboard. <laughs> you might be the first person I've spoken to who has more surfboards than me for a long time, and I appreciate that. You've given me a good context to relax a bit about my obsession. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that, James. I'm a little worried about you. Oh, <laughs> you come on. Surf, uh, you only started surfing, what, 
seven years ago. And yeah, I'm a late starter, but I'm heavy into it. No, that's an obsession, all right. Yeah. yeah. As long as it's you know, as long as it's not compromising any aspect of your life, then it's okay. I'd actually say it really enhances every part of my life. It's changed me. I'm nothing like the me from ten years ago. How like in every way, from physicality to spiritually to focus to just everything. It's not something you do. It's like someone you become, right? Yeah. And uh, it's amazing. Yeah. I think if the world surfed, it'd be a much more chilled place, but it'd be a bit crowded in the lineup. That's true. We don't want the world to surf <laughs> just yet, but there's no. a whole lot of wave pool technology coming. Yeah, wait till the wave pool comes to your local area. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's very good. So just on a final thing, I think this will really be appreciated by our listener. Your listener? You've only got one? Just one. You know, when someone's listening to this, it's just them listening to it by themselves. So I really think, oh, okay. I'm really thinking, um, I really want to speak to one person, but I know my customers very well because I communicate with them most days. I have a pretty active forum. There's around 500 people who I'm looking after in super fast business and they love when we get new guests and we can talk about this. We'll chat about this, I'm sure, many times after we record. But I'm thinking you had to step up and take more ownership of your media responsibilities. And we're now in an age where, well, rank amateurs like me can have our own podcast. Like anyone can be in charge of their own media and profile. How important do you think it is for young people to get aware of how much they can control of their own presence and their media channels. Yes, well, social media is a new beast and we don't really know the long-term implications of the use of social media, but we're starting to realise that it can have a profound effect on your marketability, your employability and your future life. So I've always been very media savvy and that's because I recognise my position as a role model and as a champion and so therefore I haven't allowed the media to dictate terms to me. I've gone in going, okay, what story do I want to tell? What's the legacy I want to leave? What's the impression I want to make? So I've taken ownership of it, so therefore I can't be manipulated by it. And media literally is a manipulative force because, I mean, ideally it wants to tell a story, but it also wants to make you do something, whether it's to buy something or feel something or, you know, whatever it wants you to make you do. So I've always gone into it with this ideal around what's the message I want to leave? How do I want to make people feel? What is it that I want to say and how is it that I want to say it? And then you can't be misquoted or misrepresented. Of course, the worst thing you can do is ever pick up your phone after midnight um, <laughs> when you're out about, <laughs> you know, nothing good happens after midnight that's worth putting on a social media platform. So <laughs> I've got to have rules of engagement. I thought you were going to say the worst thing you could do is show a TV audience your vegetable patch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially when it's failing. <laughs> I saw that on a little video clip and I, I laughed yeah. because yeah, you know, th this is the thing. Like, is We can be champions in one area and still learning in others. Like we all have pain. Mm. We all have things we're working on and that's why your message is so important. No matter how high or low you are right now, there are tools out there to change. So I, I think it would be so cool if you could just end us with a framework or something you've learned along the way that we can practically implement to help us get up and running. And then, of course, I'm going to recommend that we check out awakeacademy.com.au. Thank you. Go over and, and if you've enjoyed this conversation with Lane, mm. take the program. 
because there's so much to be learned. I mean, I'm always in awe of uh, watching you navigate the exact same water droplets that I'm out in there, <laughs> but in such a different way. It's crazy. Yeah. The focus that you have is it's incredible. We even scheduled this call for late in the day because you blocked the whole day for surfing. And I think like you are my ultimate superhero. <laughs> That's you. the perfection. That's life really being lived. That's true. So what's a great framework we can take? A great framework that we can all apply to any aspect of our lives or any business in our lives is a framework that I've created called the Sustained Success Framework. And it's a module that requires three different steps. So number one is clarity of vision. And a clarity of vision essentially is that where are you going or what are you going after or what is it that you want to achieve? For me, my clarity of vision is stipulated by how I want to feel each day. My life isn't depicted or determined by how much money I want to make or how many people I want to impact or how many courses I want to build. It's more about how do I want to feel each day? And like you said, I, I literally set my calendar by the surf forecast. If there's going to be waves, that I do my best to clear it. And I don't always have that freedom, but I certainly have become aware of how I best function. Now, I take Mondays off because I don't want to work on weekends. So if I feel like I have to be prepared for Monday, then I'm going to compromise Sunday afternoon by feeling like I have to you know, get stuff done. So I'd like to take Mondays off just to deal with admin and stuff to prepare me for the week. Now, fortunately, I have the freedom to do that. And I've delegated very well and I have good people around me. And that's the second part of the puzzle is your dream team. Who is it within your framework or your network that can help you achieve what your vision is? And then you've got to have the strength of clarity of vision and communication and confidence to share that vision with your dream team so they can best help you. If we don't know what we want or we don't know where we're going, it's very difficult for us to ask any of the right questions. And then the final piece of that puzzle is what actions do you need to take on a day-to-day -day basis to help you either get closer to your dream team or closer to your vision. So as long as you're clear, you've got your team, and then you take action, that seems to be a model that has helped me become a multiple-time world champion, build a great business, you know, go from being the beach babe to chair of the board at Surfing Australia and everything in between. Yeah. Well, you've done so much for women in the sport as well. You've brought them parity. You are tirelessly dedicated to making a better environment for the competitors now than what you had. So thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for sharing with us on this show. And, uh, you know, if I see you out in the water, then you can have every wave <laughs> no doubt about it well you know i'll take it anyway <laughs> i know you will <laughs> thanks lane thanks Dan. oh and there's one more thing there's a great yep. movie coming out called girls can't surf okay yeah it's a documentary about women surfing in the 80s and 90s and what we overcame to create what they have today that sounds fantastic yeah it's a, it's a fascinating snapshot so check it out but yeah thanks so much for having me today it's been great chat awesome Discover how to build your business super fast. Check out superfastbusiness.com. Thank you.